Our passage this morning comes from the book of Mark, if you'd like to turn there, Mark chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 24. The word of God says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came down and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, and even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way, for the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found that the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that our Lord has the power to cast out demons and cleanse us from all darkness and sin. We ask that through the preaching and reading of your word this morning, you would cleanse us from all darkness and teach us to walk in the light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Through seven chapters now of Mark, Mark has been presenting and answering for us a question, really a few, but who is Jesus and why has he come? We've seen this question now answered primarily through the events of Jesus' life, through his miracles, through interactions that he has had with the crowds, with the disciples, with the Pharisees. We've seen it through his teaching in parables. And while not maybe explicitly answered yet, we have seen it answered. And indeed, the answer is that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. And the way that Jesus has presented it, whether in deed or in word, has has left room that there is no middle ground here. Either you take Jesus as Lord and King and Savior... Or you reject what he has to say. You can't just take him as a helpful teacher, a little bit of this, and then reject some of it. It's either all or nothing. We'll come to really the crescendo of answering that question as Jesus interacts with Peter and his disciples at the end of chapter 8. But for right now, as we close out chapter 7, we'll see another, uh, another answer given As we see, who indeed is this Jesus? He is God. And why has he come? He has come to set us free from our bondage. We'll really look at two encounters. The one you heard read for you by Brian just a second ago. And then the last encounter in chapter 7. And looking at it, it'll show us what, what Christian faith really looks like. And what the object of that faith is. To say it more precisely, what what it will say for us, it will demonstrate how we are to approach Jesus Christ. How are we to approach Jesus Christ? And then the second encounter will show us why we can approach Jesus Christ. How are we to do it? Why are we to do it? You notice as we've gone through Mark to this point, Jesus has spent almost all of his time ministering to the people of Israel. He's been in Jewish context, Jewish provinces, almost exclusively to this point. And while there's been some interactions with Gentiles along the way, his ministry is to the the Jew first. And so we see that in the way his ministry has been carried out. But here we see something unique. Jesus has left the Jewish province and he's come into Tyre and Sidon. 
And so he is in a, a Gentile area for, for the first time as he's come into these provinces. There's a few reasons to think that this would have happened. I, I think primarily within the province, Jewish provinces, there has been a groundswell of enthusiasm, I can not say that, uh, around Jesus not true faith. They, they, they still haven't comprehended who he is and what his mission is. And yet wherever he goes, there are crowds and there, are excite, there is excitement and people want to see uh, him perform miracles and provide healing for their friends, for them, family, for themselves. And this groundswell is, is we see through the disciples is somewhat revolutionary in the sense that they think there is a revolutionary leader who is emerging who can help them in the political realms. And Jesus is constantly trying to quell that among the crowds and get away from them. And so often you see he goes somewhere private. He tries to get away from the crowds. He's going somewhere private. So now he, he leaves the Jewish province altogether to get away from the crowds, to get a moment of respite. But sure enough, the crowds follow him and find him in this Gentile country. So that's the context as we come then to the Syrophoenician woman that we see that you just heard read about. This first encounter, as this woman approaches God, it really is a, a superlative example for us of how we should approach Jesus Christ. As you come, you get the sense that Jesus here is in this home. She is coming and she will not be stopped she is going to see Jesus. She is insistent upon it. If you look at Matthew's account of it, you see just how insistent she really is. So she's coming to Jesus and, and she will not be stopped. And in her insistence, you know, she's not a Jewish person herself. Mark makes a note of that. She's a Gentile. But from a province that borders up against the Jewish people, she would know the customs of the day. She would know that she, as a Gentile woman, is not allowed to approach this Jewish preacher, teacher, prophet, someone like Jesus. It's breaking every ethnic, social, religious rule that there is. She would be aware of that, and yet she kind of will not be stopped as she comes and she falls at the feet of Jesus I think it's obvious to see why this is in the context. It's not that she is stupid to the rules, and it's not that she is a woman of great courage, I don't think. It's that she's a mother and her child's in trouble. I think that, you know, that just is a category all to itself of the mama bear instincts kicking in. Her daughter's not with her, she's back home, but she is possessed of a demon of some sort. She wants this demon cast out, and so that motherly instinct kicks in, and she comes to Jesus, and she will not be stopped. And then we get Jesus' response to her, and at first blush, it, it feels like he's being pretty harsh, if not really insulting to her. Look what Jesus says, so she comes in verse 26, she begs him, cast out the demon from, his daughter, from her daughter. And Jesus' response to her is, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And that, that seems a, a little harsh, doesn't it? 
First of all, I, I think it helps us to see the historical background and to realize Jesus is teaching this woman in a little parable. That's what we have here. It's just a small little parable. So in context, you would see that often the Gentile people, those who are outside of the the covenant of God, those who would reject God, will sometimes be referred to in a derogatory sense as dogs. You see that in the context of the New Testament. And normally, this is coming from the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees, they always are putting themselves up on a pedestal as the religious elite. They keep the customs and the codes. And so those who don't follow their codes, those who don't act just like them, they are dogs. In fact, you see Paul in Philippians, he turns the paradigm up on its head, if you remember that. And he looks at the Pharisees and the way that they are rejecting Jesus and instead holding to their traditions, like we saw last week. And Paul turns to the Pharisees and says, actually, you guys are the mutilators, the evildoers, and the dogs. And so it becomes this category of those who are outside the covenant of God, those who reject his word. And you understand, dogs in that context, New Testament times, you know, it's not like the way we treat our our dogs. They, They were like scavengers, filthy animals roaming around, eating trash, carry on. And so it was not a polite term. So this idea does rest in the background. This idea, this context of the Jew-Gentile distinction. Those who are in the covenant and those who are not. And we see that again. Jesus has ministered. He has come to the Jew first, to, to the Israelites. That's where his ministry has taken place. Not to totally exclude the Gentiles, but it begins there primarily with the Gentile people. There's a few times in the text where a Greek word is really helpful. I, I try not to go there too often, but every once in a while, the, the scripture is, claim, is plain. It's clear for us to sit and for it to do its work in our heart and, its, and our lives. It, it has a clarity to it. But occasionally there is in the original language a word that just clues us into certain nuances that are helpful. And the word that he uses here for dog is different than all the rest in the New Testament where it is more of that derogatory term. Here it's literally puppy. So it is more of the idea of a pet, of a puppy. When I first moved to Pittsburgh, I lived in this little third floor apartment. And uh, that's where Anna and I first lived when we were married. And we have the same dog we had now. We had that dog as a puppy. It had no business having a puppy up in that third floor apartment. I mean, I was gone all day. I would come back. You can imagine it was a mess. But in that apartment at the time, right next to us was Yinsburg Wing Zone. Does it get more Pittsburgh than that? The Yinsburg Wing Zone. They just sold wings. And I don't know what it was about the neighborhood, but I don't know if there's no trash cans or what, but people would get wings, they would eat it the best they could, and then just chuck it. So when we would take Millie, our dog, for walks, I mean, it was almost every time we took her for walks, she was getting at least like two or three wings because we could just not keep her away from it. So it just became this running joke of, you know, we don't even have to buy dog food. We just take her for walks a few times a day. She was living on wings and little bones and 
And unfortunately, that formed a habit that we've never really broken. We don't feed her wings, but now with the kids, as they spread their food all out over their plate, she still gets the table scraps at the end of the day. She's an old dog and healthy, so it's worked out. But um, yeah, she's still getting it. But when we sit down to eat, we don't think, okay, we've got six hamburgers. Let's get the best one and give it to Millie. If she seems hungry, we'll give her another one. Okay, she's done now. No, obviously not. The family eats first. The children eat first. You, you're not really even considering Millie. You're all eating. And then she, we kind of scrape it off into her bowl. That's more of what Jesus is, is saying here is they, there is a priority. The, the, you sit down at the table. The children are fed first. And then what's left, the, the crumbs, the, the scraps, the leftovers, then the pet gets it. Then our little puppy gets those leftovers. There is a priority to it. And in this statement, in this little parable, Jesus is putting a, a challenge and an offer before this Syrophoenician woman. And you see her first response First, we know she's not going to take no for an answer. She, she comes back to Jesus, but she does not dispute Jesus on what he has said. She meets the, the challenge here. She does not reject his statement. She, she responds with it with, yes, I accept what you say. I have no place at the table. I have no right at the table. She asserts herself, but not on her own merit or her own goodness in any way. She recognizes, I do not have the scripture. I, I do not have the law. I am not part of the covenant. I don't worship Yahweh God. I, I'm not part of your covenant people in this way. Yes, I have no rightful place at the table. And yet you see, she responds to the offer. In verse 27 in verse 28, I'm sorry, but she answered him and said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You see, she's still assertive, but she doesn't come back on like, I'm, I'm standing on my rights. You owe me an apology. That's not fair. I, I, you know, I deserve to be treated better than this. I'm worth more. She doesn't come and, and make an argument or a stand based on her own rights or her own goodness. Instead, she acknowledges she has no place at the table. But she's being assertive. She's making the request based on the goodness and generosity of Christ. She's not saying, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She is saying, give me what I do not deserve on the basis of your goodness. That is the approach to Jesus. It is not defensive. It is not self-righteous. It is not this, no, no, I deserve more. I, I've, no, it is, I accept it. I have no rightful place at the table. I'm willing to accept that reality. And if you want to call it an insult, I'm willing to accept that insult. But I am not going to bring an insult back at you and say that your goodness, your mercy, your abundance isn't still enough to overflow and feed me. Jesus' response to her, you, again, you don't pick it up totally here, 
in verse 29, he said to her, for this statement, literally, it's what an answer. (laughs) What an answer. Really, for the first time, someone understands Jesus' mission, understands what Jesus is saying understands what he is offering. I mean, we've just come off last week the, the Pharisees coming and trying to entrap Jesus on all of their customs and all their righteousness. And that's when he says, I hate your customs, okay? I hate all your traditions. But your heart is far from me. And here we see the opposite. This, this woman, a religion of the heart... <laughs> comes and she finally gets it. She finally understands it. For the first time, Jesus is telling a parable and the person hears it and enters into the parable with them, with him, responds within the parable and understands what Jesus is offering and understands that, yes, I accept it. I have no place at the table and yet my standing has never been that. No one's standing is that they've merited a place at the table. It's that Jesus has given us a free offer because of the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther loved this text. One thing with Martin Luther is if you read him, it feels like often he says, like, this is my favorite parable. And then the next parable, he'd be like, this is my favorite parable. So he's a great quote in that way. But he loved this parable and he talked that no other parable is the gospel so present as it is in this that she is willing to accept her unworthiness, but is not so self-absorbed that she can't look outside of herself and see that the gospel is being offered. John Newton, probably best known for writing Amazing Grace, he once wrote a letter to a a parishioner who's really struggling with sin and just uh, apparently was just despondent and beaten down by it and had a lot of pity. John Newton says this in the letter. He says, I... You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside of yourself. But you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which may be right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when I look at your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evils you complain of. You know, there is a call for confession and repentance. We start every service that way, that we come corporately, individually. We ask God to grant us repentance confession of sin, that there would be sorrow for that sin as we turn to Christ. But it is not honoring to God to, as a believer, live beaten down and and guilty and try to punish yourself for sin that Jesus already paid, already accepted the punishment for. We sometimes get this weird that somehow it's pleasing to the Lord or somehow we're, we're... You know, we're punishing ourselves for our sins by just living in that misery and pity. And John Newton's right when he says, okay, I get it. You have a a good view of yourself, that you're a sinner. But you have a terrible view of the grace and mercy and accomplishments of Jesus Christ on the cross. Are you saying that that was not enough? That the Son of God laying down his life was not enough? 
And so I think we're challenged in this point. I think that's why Martin Luther does say from texts and, and, and other texts like this, that sin boldly, but believe more boldly. He's not saying flaunt it in the face of God, but he's saying, yes, we're still sinners, but don't live a beaten down life because of that. That Jesus Christ can save. His mercy is abundant. His grace that is greater than your sin. And so I think that's a challenge to us, that sometimes our misery and our sense of self-pity isn't always nice, pure, uh, we just feel bad about our sins, but it's often that we are trying to pay the price for our sins that Jesus already paid, and that is not honoring to him. Again, this story stands in stark contrast to the Pharisees right before, who stood on their own self-righteousness and trying to come to Christ. So how do we approach Jesus Christ? We see it in this lady, not arguing on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of God's goodness. Then why can we approach God? We look at the next section here. Jesus continues, we're in verse 31 now, Jesus continues in his travels here in the Gentile area, and brought to him is a man who is, who is struggling who is deaf, has a speech impediment. It's interesting, Jesus' response, the way he brings healing to this man is very different than what we've seen to this point in uh, the Gospel of Mark. Listen, or you can follow along as we read. I'll begin reading in verse 32 of chapter 7. It says, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Look what Jesus does. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ear. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. It feels very theatrical, doesn't it, for Jesus? Who normally just says something they're not expecting or says, you know, but he, you know, he brings them apart. He's looking up to heaven. He's getting the spittle. He's touching the ears. He's touching the tongue. He's doing all of these things. I think we see why. He knows the needs of this man. He knows that this person, he's deaf. <laughs> he can't communicate. He can't speak. So he engages the other senses of this man to let him know what's going on. He touches him, he does the tongue, he walks through to assure this man. There's intimacy, there's compassion, there there is this personal approach that he brings. I I think there's an easy application. We don't all come to God in the same way with the exact same needs. The pastoral prayer, we, we prayed for that. That we all come, as that one song says, some with... Uh, struggling in the battles, others singing of victories won. We, we come with different struggles, different ways, and, and God meets us where we are. He, he is gracious to us how we need to be heard. He was to the Syrophoenician woman. He, he gives this challenge, and she responds, and, and he, what an answer, and he brings healing. To this man, he, he, he comes differently, and it's, it's intimate, and it's compassionate, and it's Remember that the Lord is a personal God. He is God over all creation. We 
we went through the attributes of God and his unchangeableness and all of, all of the doctrinal things about God. And yet at the same time, we need to remember he's also a personal God who's intimate and who cares. And we see that in the way that Jesus interacts with this man. At the end, it says that Jesus sighs or he groans as he's bringing healing We've seen this before in Mark, this sigh or this groan as, as Jesus enters into the plight of the people, as he, as he really has in his incarnation, he does in his ministry, and just he feels and he sees just the weight of the fall, of the curse, of a sin-broken, sin-gripped world. And his heart, it groans, he sighs as he sees that, as he identifies with this man. And as we know already, the shadow of the cross falling over the ministry of Jesus, as he identifies this man and he knows what it will take to really set this man free. Like most miracles, there's a little bit of prophecy in the miracle. It's not just an isolated, standalone event that took place here. It is both a fulfillment of prophecy and it's pointing forward to a full fulfillment. When Jesus brings sight to the blind or here, when he heals, brings hearing to the deaf, he opens up a tongue that that they might proclaim his goodness, speak clearly. It's looking forward to his return. It's looking forward to when he makes all things new the last little Greek clue we'll give you here. There's a a very unique word that Mark uses, and it's actually one word that reads death and had a speech impediment. All of that comes from this kind of one full, robust word. It's only used twice in all of Scripture. So when something like that happens, it's, it's pretty clear. He's indicating that we understand, okay, let's look back and see where this has taken place. The only other place that it's used is in Isaiah. We see that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, 1 through 10 is a rich passage. It kind of transitions out of judgment to God bringing uh, hope to his people. But he says in verse chapter 4 of Isaiah 35, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And here we see the word used twice. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The only other time that word there is used is declaring when God comes, this is what's going to happen. When he shows up, the deaf will hear. They'll have ears to hear. When God shows up, when he comes, those who have mute tongues, they'll be able to proclaim and to sing his joy. And what Mark is indicating here is not just this miracle, but it's prophecy. The saying, God is here. In the person of Jesus Christ, God is here. Again, a a prophetic word that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. Because when God shows up, this is what happens. In fact, in verse 2 it says of Isaiah 35, it says that the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. You know what two regions make up Lebanon? Tyre and Sidon. Right where we are right now. 
but what forward looking. It's obviously a prophecy that we see fulfilled right here with Jesus Christ, but we know it's looking forward to the day when all of us will be able to speak with unbridled tongue and ask, offer praise to our great God, to hear his word with clarity. I think the clue is in this in verse 4 when it says, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come with vengeance. How is he coming with vengeance in order to open our eyes, to give us ears to hear, to loosen our tongues? Well, it's not that he's just bringing vengeance. He's coming to bear vengeance. He knows that ultimately this is going to be fulfilled in the cross of Christ. That what it's going to really take to offer this man a new voice and ears to hear is that someone is going to have to bear the vengeance of God. It's pointing us to Jesus Christ. A Syrophoenician woman understood it. She's not getting a place at the table because of her own merits. She's getting it because of Jesus Christ's merits. And why? Because vengeance, the punishment for sin that was poured out, was intercepted, was borne by Jesus Christ on the cross for you and for me. In a moment, we'll have the Lord's Supper. You know why you're invited to the table? Because of the reality that we are celebrating. That Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for our sake. So we see it here. Let's be encouraged in it. How should we approach our God? How does he want us to approach us, approach him? That we come not getting what we deserve on the basis of our goodness, but getting what we don't deserve on the basis of his goodness because of his accomplishments on the cross. Just read verse 37 with me, a good way to end our time here. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this little parable, for this miracle, which indeed, Lord, points to the prophetic truth that Jesus is the Son of God and points us forward to realities that we will enjoy, to be invited, to be given a place at the table because of the accomplishments of someone else to be given eyes to see, ears to hear, a mouth to proclaim the goodness of God because you bore the vengeance. Lord, in a way so that we could go from being dogs to being children at the table because you accepted the wrath of your Father. Lord, might these thoughts really penetrate our hearts and minds. Might they encourage us as we come to the table.